Come on. I've already heard it. It's not ugly sweater day today. I have heard it. I have heard it. I have heard it. Man, I love, uh, I love, I love our church family, and I love uh, what Fred and Krista mentioned, um, that the Great Commission isn't going to all the world and make more worship attenders, baptizing them in the name of small groups so they could serve once or twice a month. It is the value of a serve team as a way that we grow together as a family, that we link arms and partner towards different things within the family, and so... Uh, like Fred said, if you're not part of a serve team around here, it is a phenomenal way to just partner and share life with others uh, that are on this journey together. And, uh, and you're about to, to, to see a window into my life. Come on. That's fantastic. Thank you, Sandy. Thank you. Thank you. Warms my heart. Warms my heart. The few, the proud in enemy territory. Um, you, you're about to get a window into maybe things that I love. Maybe you're like, man, now, now we know you're a knucklehead. Um, but, but Casey and I, about 10 years ago, uh, went to a concert together, and, uh, and he's an artist that I appreciated. He just passed away from stomach cancer. His name's Toby Keith. And, uh, and, and he, there was a song that got played in a movie recently from Clint Eastwood. He was asked to record a song, and, uh, and so I stumbled upon that song recently, again, in, in uh, these tributes going out, and it, and it struck me, it struck me, here's the line to the song, uh, don't let the old man in, speaking of, speaking of death and, and this inevitable uh, movement and decline in life, I want to live me some more. Can't leave it up to him. He's knocking on my door. And I knew all of my life that someday it would end. Get up and go outside. Don't let the old man in. I knew all my life that someday it would end. I think that's a reality we are aware of and, and yet maybe isn't always as pressing uh, in our minds. This week I'm turning 40, which is surreal. It's surreal. And so some of you are like, man, welcome to the club. I remember when I turned 40. Others of you are thinking, man, that is old. That feels, feels like forever away. Uh, I remember when I was first becoming a Vikings fan. I was 13, 12, 13, 14, and, and 40 did feel like forever away, that there's so much life to live. I couldn't even fathom what the next 25 years might hold. And as I look ahead, again, I know all my life that someday it would end. And, and so we find ourselves in, in Holy Week in Luke. And, and we're looking for models on how to live this life. We're looking for people to emulate and, and, and to see the way life is intended to live. And so this morning... Jesus is going to go on the offensive, and he's going to give a model for life that wouldn't be the one we would necessarily assume is the one we would all recognize. And so I just want to look back on where we've been in Holy Week. Sunday, the triumphal entry happens, and, and we have a God who weeps. He, he, he is praised as the Messiah, and then simultaneously is weeping over Jerusalem. 
And then on Monday, it gets real. He, he flips tables. He, he, is, he is longing for the holiness of his place of worship. And, and he starts flipping tables. And then Tuesday, we've been on Tuesday where we've seen this confrontation escalate. We saw trap one a few weeks ago where he talks about authority. And, and they are asking about his authority, and he's able to, to work their questions in, a, in an incredible way to demonstrate his authority. We see another trap set for him about allegiance. Do I give to Caesar or to God? And, and God uh, is, is who we give everything to. And Jesus develops that in a phenomenal way. This third trap, we we then got to see, Ryan did an excellent job last week lifting our eyes to see heaven is beyond what we can comprehend. They have a question about marriage, and Jesus lifts their eyes. Heaven is beyond what they can imagine, but not only beyond, better than what you can imagine. And then in Luke, we don't see this trap, but we see it in the other Gospels. Which commandment is the greatest? And Jesus helps evade that trap again. But this morning, everything has been towards Jesus. What do you think Jesus does this morning? He goes on the offensive. And and he then presses them. And he gives us a model (laughs) My whole life, I I knew it was going to end. There is a day coming where this life ends. Toby Keith met the creator, 62. I don't know what his eternal destiny is. There is that day coming. And and we look for people. And Jesus this morning, as he goes on the offensive, gives an incredibly unlikely model. So turn with me. We're in Luke 20, 41. And we're going to go to verse 4. And if you're new with us, we love, we just love hearing from God through his word to understand how we can best go through our days. And and so Jesus now shares again about a model that no one would expect. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins about a quarter of a penny's worth. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus now goes on the offensive against the religious leaders. They've been laying these traps. Now Jesus turns in an attempt to help us recognize who he is And then worship him appropriately. He goes on the offensive to direct them to who he is and how to worship him appropriately. And then gives us this very unlikely candidate of what that looks like. It is this poor widow. So pray with me and uh, and we uh, we will jump in to the text this morning.
Jesus, guard my heart, guard whatever might be swirling around in my heart, guard our hearts. Help us hear from you through your word. Help us, help us be directed uh, to who you are and what it means to live our life. And if that is so far from our reality, if we're searching for who you are, may this morning be one more step to finding life in your name that you will use these words as you go on the offensive. May you use these words to draw us more to who you are and what it means to worship you. Reveal yourself this morning is always our prayer, always for your glory. Amen. So, so pretty simple. <laughs> Don't be like the religious leaders. Do be like the widow. Uh, that is the call this morning, and he shows us by taking us to Psalm 110. And so here's how Jesus goes on the offensive. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? So who's the them and who's the they? I think the them, he's on the offensive. He turns to the crowd. Hey, hey guys, these people that you follow, they don't got their stuff together. Don't be like them. He turns to the crowd and goes on the offensive against the religious leaders. How can they say the Christ is David's son? So Jesus is now turning. This whole time, it's always been, hey, don't tell anybody about me. Don't tell anybody about me. And now he turns and gets very direct. Here's what he says. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Luke tells us where it's coming from, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So let's just go back briefly to Psalm 110. What's what's David saying in this psalm? And this, some say, messianic psalm is how it was intended. Here's Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's Yahweh talking to the Messiah. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb in the morning and the dew of your youth will be yours. And then a second quote from Yahweh. So I didn't capitalize it, but in your Bibles, if you open to Psalm 110 and you see all caps, L-O-R-D, if you're in Psalm 110, anyone turn to Psalm 110? Slackers, all of you, don't lie, this is church. None of you turn there, none of you turn there. You're all trusting that I put up the right things on the slides. And by now you should know I make spelling mistakes from time to time. Anyway, so if you go to Psalm 110, you're going to see L-O-R-D capitalized. That's Yahweh. Yahweh is when it's all caps. And then the other phrase, my Lord, is Adonai. And that's used in a variety of ways to recognize some type of uh, leadership. And so here, referencing to the Messiah, two quotes from Yahweh about the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And the Lord has sworn and not change his mind. You were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're going to pick that up a little bit later, but a, a, a reference to a guy that shows up at a very brief time. So the Lord says to my Lord. So Jesus picks that up. He picks that up. He's, he's on the offensive now, and of all the places he could go, he goes to Psalm 110 to talk about who he is. So we're asking why. Why is Jesus going to this place, and what's his purpose? What's he trying to tell these religious leaders that he's saying, don't be like them? 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So Yahweh turns to the Messiah and David saying about them, that's my Lord. Jesus goes to Psalm 110 to press in. What is David saying? How can David call him Lord and be his son? So here's what Jesus is doing. There's a sense of who the Messiah is. We get he's going to be a descendant of David. That's the promise. Second Samuel. The Messiah is going to come from David's line. He's going to be a son of David. So he's inferior to David. But in Psalm 110, David calls him my Lord. And so he's actually going to be superior to David. How's that work? Jesus presses them, and, and, and they're, they're, they're confused by it. They don't know what to do. Their lack of understanding. And so we all know, 2 Samuel 7, God promises to raise up David's offspring and establish his kingdom. That is the promise he made with David. And then in Isaiah, there was a, coming, a, a promise of a coming Messiah. God will raise up a shoot from David's lineage. And then Jeremiah, same thing, this promise of being a son of David. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely. But each one of those texts also point to someone who's greater than David. It's a promise to raise up David's offspring and establish his kingdom. How long? Not for a short earthly reign, but forever. That in Isaiah, he will raise up a shoot and under his leadership, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. There's going to be this unreal peace when the Messiah comes. He's going to be greater than the King David that we all know and love. And then in Jeremiah 23, his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. There is a perfection that will come in his reign. That he is both a son of David and yet David's Lord And Jesus presses them with that, that he says, the Lord says to my Lord, how does David call him Lord? And again, there were those two references. Who is this Lord? He's going to be one that sits at God's right hand and makes his enemies his footstool. And he's going to be a priest, not just king, but priest forever. He's going to have this dual role. I'm not a priest, right? You don't need me to go before God because we have a high priest, King Jesus, that you can go directly to God. And so Jesus is now ticking the boxes. Who is this guy? He's a coming king who will rule with godly wisdom. And he's going to be the greatest king in Israel's history. And he's going to sit at the right hand of God with authority and power. And then he is a king who is also a priest from the order of Melchizedek. You can go back to Genesis. There is this one reference of this dude who shows up who's this priest king. And then the author of Hebrews, in trying to explain who Jesus is, references Psalms and references Genesis as this unique guy who steps on the scene as a foreshadowing of what type of priest king Jesus would be, that he intercedes for us, that he goes before God on our behalf. Who is the Lord? Who is David's Lord? What is Jesus saying? He's God. Jesus is telling them, 
you guys are missing it, that I am both God and man. That, that he is demonstrating on the offensive that he is both God and man. Now, you guys know there's a, a Super Bowl going on, right? Not right now, but there is one happening today. And I don't know if you know this, but see, like Patrick Mahomes, that guy can sling a football. Like that guy is just unreal. Like what he can do with a football. I mean, his, his agility, you see some of his training. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, so he walked on water, right? I mean, he, like he did some cool stuff. He, I mean, he like fed 5,000 people with a fish and some loaves. But man, Travis Kelsey, like this guy is about to be one of the greatest tight ends of all time. And Christian McCaffrey, rushing record this year, it was incredible. Like his jukes and what he could do with the football, it's, it's incredible. Oh yeah, Jesus, God and man. I mean, he, he, he came to earth 2,000 years ago. Like, man, I was, I was a, it was really good, right? What it feels like sometimes is we get caught up in, in all the things happening in life. And what Jesus is trying to do in this moment is help us draw our eyes to the glory and power and majesty of what it means that God became man and fulfilled this promise, seated at the right hand, priest and king. And who is he directing this assault against? These scribes, the religious leaders, And he shows us they are not the models that we should follow when we think about what it means to honor God for who he is. He's showing us their bad theology has led to bad behavior. What bad behavior does he highlight? He highlights they have a small view of their coming Messiah, and it gets reflected in their behavior. What behavior? That their insides don't match what they express. That their outside game looks good, but the internal heart, oh, it's a beautiful thing. We love that noise, don't we? We love that noise. It's an absolute gift. Their outside game was inconsistent with their inside game. Here's what he says about them. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. What is that? These long robes, they they love that their clothes reveal their worth to others. Nice, long, flowing robes. We don't do that in our society. It's not part of how we live. The greetings in the marketplace, they love being recognized as important by others. The best seats, I think more contextually, Positions admired by others in church. Oh, they serve in that ministry. That's a little more visible of a ministry. Oh, that serve team gets a lot more recognition and credibility. Best seats. Devoured widows' houses. They take advantage of those they should be helping. And they make these long prayers. They're inconsistent models that act in ways that project the spiritual health that is not a genuine expression of worship. These are not the models. Jesus says, I know these are the guys that get recognized in your world. They are not the ones to follow. Their outside game was inconsistent with their inside game. And so in our world, what's something that, that maybe we all participate in 
that, that we maybe all interact with on a weekly basis that reveals, that reveals whether our insides match our outsides. What's like one maybe universal thing, and, and what struck me, one of our elders mentioned it, it's a shopping cart. And so the question is, when you go shopping, do you, are you the kind of person... Are you the kind of person when, when you return your shopping cart and, you know, you finished grocery shopping, you, 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 uh, you had a wonderful shopping experience at Hy-Vee or maybe Super Walmart or Target, and, and then it's time. What, what time is it after you load your groceries into your car? It's time to, yeah, it's time to return the cart. And so the question is, how many people are watching whether you return the cart or not? Does in your mind you go, that's a long way. Hy-Vee doesn't offer that many return cards. <laughs> you know what? I want to save it for the next person that's going to pull into this parking spot. I'm just going to leave it right here. When no one's watching, what does your mind and heart go to? Does your insides match your outsides? And so for me, some of those questions start to bubble up. Am I ever motivated to do something for Jesus when the real driver is the desire to be acknowledged by others? Am I the person that when it's time to return the cart, making a lot of noise to make sure people know, hey, and then I walk up to the car, hey, can I grab your cart too? What's, what's the driver that motivates us as we act and live in the world. You know when we give gifts to people? Man, we just love Jesus so much and so we want to show generous relationships. We want to give generously. Except when they don't write a thank you card to tell us that they received our wonderful gift. Then it's like, did you get my gift? Because I didn't receive a thank you card. Well, what is the, the driver, the motivation, and is it to be acknowledged by others? Am I ever disappointed when I don't receive recognition for a loving act? When I have this lifestyle or act that I produce, but I might not get recognized in my heart or recognized publicly. Uh, one of the things we have been talking about is sit close, park far, sit close, and to provide some parking spaces. And so, uh, so one of the conversations that happen around the office is if we park in La Petite, what are we feeling when we walk over the bridge? Maybe as people are driving by, do they recognize the long walk that I'm making from La Petite to free up some parking spaces? When you're in your workplace, and maybe you do something for the good of the office, is it done in public or is it done so that no one sees? Am I ever disappointed when I don't receive the recognition for a loving act? Maybe, like me, you occasionally will reference to your spouse, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I did the dishes today. To which Casey says, here's your gold star. Thanks for just being part of the family. Right? <laughs> Am I ever disappointed when I don't receive the recognition for a loving act? And am I motivated to act in ways that cause others to think I'm more godly 
than I am. Maybe when you're returning the shopping cart, it isn't for the good of walking that back and saving someone the trip, but in your heart, you're grumbling. (laughs) Why am I bringing this back? I just wish we didn't have to do this. Am I motivated in a way to act that causes others to think I'm more godly, but in my heart is actually a posture of bitterness or hurt or or anger or frustration? What's going through our minds and hearts? Jesus then says, don't be like the scribes. Who does he offer as an example? It's a person we would never think. He says, be like the poor widow. But he said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For God himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He's lifting their eyes to see the glory of the Messiah, to see the beauty of who Jesus is. And then he turns, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. It doesn't develop what that is here, but it's something that I don't think we'd want to experience. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting in their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And so just just for a little context, slightly different than our world, right? Because you might go to, well, how, how did he know? Was Jesus judging them? How did he know how much they were giving? Like, what was the what was the awareness? Their style of giving was slightly different than maybe how it looks around here. Uh, They didn't have, you know, when was the printing press uh, invented? Anybody know off the top of their head? I always want to be fact-checked at some point. So this is me attempting to alleviate one of you coming in fact-checking me on when this happened. What was the printing press? It was like 1500s? Anyway, all that to say, Eric, you got it? Eric's usually coming to fact-check me later. He's like, David, I don't know if you spelled that wrong. There's a little grammar area. Anyway, um, (laughs) neither here nor there. Printing press wasn't invented yet. So imagine, you guys ever been... Uh, maybe at your credit union or the grocery store, you've heard those people like bring in like massive jars of coins for like Coinstar. You know what I'm talking about? Like picture that. That's how you would know. So, you know, like they're dumping all their coins in and you could just, the machine is just rumbling around. So Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting in their gifts into the offering box. Then he saw a widow put in Two small copper coins. And you can imagine that's, it's wild to think. A hundredth, a hundredth of a day's wage. This is about a quarter of a penny. And, and here's his response. They're sitting there watching this happen, and here's what Jesus says. We don't hear her. Luke's done this now a few times. We don't hear from her, but here's what he says. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. She becomes the silent, visible model for how we ought to live. And so, so the question, be like the poor widow in what way? Because Jesus points her out. We're going to trust that her motives are pure, that her heart is to glorify God. That's the flow. 
the bad theology led to bad behavior from these scribes. Now Jesus shows what good theology would lead to. Here's an example. And that she actually gave everything. So, so what did she give? Here's what we see. Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Why? For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so don't press it too far, right? It's not that somehow, well, now she's just going to go curl up and die in a corner somewhere. Widows, they were, again, valued in a society that didn't have a social infrastructure, they provided. It's why we see in James a call to care for widows and orphans. So she's, she's getting cared for in some way. But the emphasis is on her heart and what she's giving, the way she gave. Because we see all in Luke, there is this tie to our resources and our heart. I just want to read a few of them. And the crowd asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend the sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. For the thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. One more. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept. And Jesus said, one thing you still lack, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There has been throughout Luke this thread that our resources get reflected in our behavior. And so just a few things. What's he not saying? Is he saying we have to be poor? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not the the value. He's not preaching a, a a poverty gospel. Does God only like small offerings? No, that's, again, that is not what he's saying. I'm speaking for Paul, our treasurer. He would also, he wanted me to make sure I included that element. (laughs) Does God only like behind-the-scenes serve teams? No, that's not what he's saying. It's not just exclusively about behind-the-scenes. Is all of our giving monetary and only the church? No, no, that's not what he's saying, that somehow because she's given to the temple, this is the only exclusive means of giving. And is it void if someone else notices that somehow, if because they were noticed, or Jesus notices those that are giving it, is somehow void there? No, no. What is he saying? What, what does God want? And it's a thread he was sharing with us a couple weeks ago. What is it? It is everything. That we don't look at our life and see all these different categories of life and somehow put our journey with Jesus as one of the slices of the pie? Do we have Jesus sitting on the throne of our heart in every aspect of our life? In every aspect, our relationships, our attitudes, our finances, our actions, our families, 
our priorities, our free time, as we walk through life and we metaphorically are returning the shopping cart in all our situations in life, is there a consistency with how we live? Or are there places where we are in it looking for approval? Are there places that we are simply longing to be recognized for the gift we gave? Are we faking it? Is there a gap between our Monday to Saturday and our Sunday living? What is our motivation as we walk through these different circumstances? And are there places as we evaluate our life where we could see God's grace flow more freely? Monday's always coming. For us, Monday matters as we enter into our week. We long for these texts to come to bear in our situations in life. And so we just had a a recent situation uh, called the Pastor Theologian Collective. We had 67 pastors and ministry leaders there. And one of the speaker this time shared these words. He came and shared about how the gospel changes everything. And he said, these five words I carry with me everywhere I go. Christ died for my sins. Every day I go through life holding on to that reality and it permeates everything. Do we celebrate God's forgiveness? As we go through our lives, Christ died for my sins. And so when bitterness starts to creep up in my heart and I want to hold something against someone else or I want to be recognized Do we thank God that he didn't treat us in such a way, but instead laid down his life for us? Do we celebrate God's forgiveness? And then, might this week we ask God to reveal any areas of life that don't reflect wholehearted love of God, this inauthentic disconnect, doing it for others' approval. I want to invite the worship team up. And then... And then we celebrate, we ask, and I want to see this question permeate our week more fully. Will God be our sufficiency when no one else knows what we are doing? In one of the conversations this week, someone asked, you know, it's interesting. They quoted Francis Chan, it's interesting That in our life, we confess sins in private, but we do public goods. Everywhere we go, we maybe even snap a selfie of us doing our devotions and post it. Versus confessing sins publicly, but actually doing good privately. Feels like we've seen a string of leaders come to the end of their life and we suddenly discover all the brokenness that permeated their lives. Might we instead get to the end? We know it's coming. And people discover, wow, I didn't realize how saturated their life was with all the good that they did for others. Because it wasn't broadcasted, it wasn't posted. But it was the life they lived every single day they walked. Will God be our sufficiency when nobody else knows what we are doing. Pray with me and we will continue in worship. Jesus, may that be a cry more fully as we go through our lives that you are enough, (laughs) that we cling to the hope Christ died for my sins and so we can live with that grace and forgiveness. 
May we embody that a little bit more fully, not looking for accolades, not looking for people's approval, but truly seeking for yours. Help us experience that a little bit more fully this week, always for your glory.